What's up? Thanks so much for checking out this message today. Our church is in a series titled Mosaic, where we are uncovering the unique pieces of Jesus' character. We hope that this message today helps you see that there's more to Jesus than meets the eye. Before you go, make sure to hit that subscribe button so that you can get the most up-to-date Elevate City content. And if this message has blessed you, feel free to give in the link below so that this message can get in front of more people. Thanks so much. Hope you enjoy. Well, if you're new, you picked a great day to be here because we are bringing to close this collection of talks titled Mosaic. Let me hear you say Mosaic. And I hope that you have loved hearing this series as much as I've loved preparing for and preaching this series because it has totally wrecked shop on my heart. It has expanded my picture for who Jesus is, and I hope that it's done the same for you. The whole idea of this series is that there's more to Jesus than meets the eye that Jesus is a mosaic, that he is a beautiful, diverse enigma, that he is compelling and fascinating. And I hope you see him that way now. I hope that Jesus looks like a diamond to you, that you realize no matter how you turn him, that there's always another flair, always another color, always another dimension to his character. I hope you see him as more captivating and less boring. I hope you see him as more intimate and less distant, as more close and near and real and fierce and alive and that you realize that there's truly no one like him. There's no one like him in all of the earth. No one compares to him. There's no one who is as fascinating and as captivating and as interesting as the person of Jesus and there is no greater pursuit in life than giving your life to know him and making him known, amen? So far throughout this series, we've seen um, Jesus as the mosaic of the Son of Man. We started with this idea of the Son of Man, that Jesus is God in flesh, that Jesus' favorite nickname for himself, his favorite title used more than anything else throughout the New Testament is the Son of Man, that he identifies with us, that he put on a skin suit to step into our situations, to understand our circumstance, that Jesus is the son of man who knows. He knows your pain. He knows your hurts. He knows your question your questions and your hangups in life, and he can identify with you. We saw Jesus as the son of man. And then we also saw Rabbi Jesus. We saw that Jesus first made a name for himself as a charismatic, dynamic, first century rabbi from the northern part of Israel. That he is the master teacher. That in every aspect of life that he can speak truth. That he can offer perspective. That there's no area of our life that he cannot speak truth into. And that he is not just looking for religious converts, but that he is looking for committed disciples. Amen. That he is the master teacher who's looking for Talmuds who will sit at his feet and hang on his every word. And we saw that Jesus is the lamb of God, that he's the lamb of God, that the way that his cousin John the Baptist saw him is that he came to be the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that Jesus pays our penalty, that all of the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, that Jesus becomes the lamb of God that is crucified so that you and I can become the scapegoats that go free, amen? He's the lamb of God. And then we saw Jesus the way that the early church saw him. The first century global declaration was that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is not a Lord, but that he is the Lord, 
that he is in a class all by himself, that he is the high CEO of heaven, that no one compares to him, that he has no rival and that he has no equal and that he is not just looking for nominal adherence. He is looking for devoted followers. He is not in the market for casual following. He is the market for total obedience. And then we saw maybe my favorite way that we've looked at Jesus so far throughout this series, which is the way that his opponents or his critics saw him, and that's Jesus as the friend of sinners. The word on the street in first century Palestine amongst the naysayers, the religious elitists, Jesus' opponents of the day was that Jesus is a friend of sinners and that he came as a friend of sinners, not to call the righteous, but sinners unto repentance. And that the goal of discipleship, the end for which we're all striving is where Jesus looks at us and he says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. And then we saw the mosaic of Christmas. We saw the way that Jesus is seen in the Christmas story as Emmanuel, God with us. That Jesus is not a God who just stayed distant on his throne in heaven, but that he stepped into the brokenness of the human experience. That he came to be with us and that he's with us still to this day through his spirit in every day, in every way, in every situation to the very end of the age. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And today, as we bring this uh, collection of talks to a close, I want for you to see Jesus because we've seen him so many ways. We've seen him the way that he saw himself and the way that his disciples saw him and the way that his cousin John the Baptist saw him and the way that people in the first century saw him and the way the early church saw him. And today, I want for you to see Jesus the way that God sees Jesus. And I want for you to see Jesus the way that angels and demons and Satan sees Jesus. I want for you to see Jesus the way that his closest disciples see Jesus. I want for you to see Jesus the way that he has been seen throughout all of human history and the way that ironically his killers, his executioners saw him. And that's Jesus as the son of God. Jesus as the son of God. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but um, last week, my wife and I had our third child. Hello. Come on. Um, now, I'm not going to be like one of those like typical preachers who like put a picture of their kid up on the screen just to get like a cheap off. Who are you kidding? Put a picture of my baby girl up on that screen. Come on. Guys, I made that. <laughs> like I made that. Okay. Like. Everybody who loves Jesus, say aw. Oh my goodness, she is so cute. Like, look at this picture. I love this little picture of her. Look at this one. She just looks like so precious, doesn't she? Guys, I'm here to tell you, I love this little girl. Man, there is nothing quite like the heart of a father. It is just something special being the heart of a father. And here's the thing, it's like, she doesn't do anything. Okay, like all that she does is sleep and eat and poop and make weird faces. Like weird faces. Y'all don't believe me? Like, look at this. Weird faces, okay? <laughs> weird faces. Like we got another one. Look at this weird face. Like, look at the, uh, I'm looking at her going like, that must be something on your mom's side of the family. 
didn't get that from me. Weird faces, right? But I can't stop staring. I'm just like looking at her. She's farting, you know? I think she's smiling. Nope. I just can't stop staring at this girl. I don't even know her yet, right? But I love her. I don't know what she's going to be like. I don't know what her personality is going to be like. But I just can't stop making up songs for her. Baby Laney, you so crazy, but you cute like a daisy, right? I just love this little girl. Just every day, I'm looking at her and I'm singing songs to her. And I know she's got a little bit of, her, of me in her. Like, look at this picture. She got a little gangster in her. What up? <laughs> like, I love her. I've got like exactly 3,637 pictures of her on my phone already. She's 14 days old, y'all. Like, and I have so many pictures. I'm just snapping these pictures of her. I'm just so in love with her. I'm already thinking about like her future when I, I embarrass her. You know what I'm talking about? Like, cause I'm gonna be that dad, okay? Like if you ever find yourself at like a dance performance and you hear some dad just losing his mind, you're like, that kind of sounds like Joey. It probably is, okay? It's probably me just cheering her on and celebrating her every step. I can't wait to embarrass her like when she wears something like really inappropriate and then like I wear the same thing too, you know? <laughs> I'm like, all right, girl, you gonna wear that? I'm gonna wear that. <laughs> like, I just love this little girl. It is such an incredible gift to be her dad. Um, there was this moment when we were in the hospital. Um, it was a crazy moment, really. And um, so when babies are born, they're born with like ambiotic fluid in their body and C-section babies don't, don't get it out. And so it's gotta come out later on. And so we were in the hospital and I didn't really know what was happening, but a nurse was in our room at the time checking on Lainey and um, they, uh, they uh, started to like pat her on the back like really hard. Like they fl this nurse flips her over and she's got her like by her throat and she is like slamming this little girl's back. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what is happening? Like I was about to go doctor death on this nurse, y'all, okay? Like, what are you doing to my girl? I will bite you, all right? Like I, I literally find myself like getting ready to commit a felony towards this nurse because she's trying to save my little girl, right? But but I was just losing my mind because I love her so much. There's just something about the heart of a father which makes Jesus coming as the son of God that much more significant. I want for you to think about this for a second. The most famous verse in all of Christianity throughout all of the scriptures is what John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God in all of his godness, in all of his wisdom, in all of his genius goes, I love you so much that I am going to give up my son to bring many sons to glory. Have you ever so loved something have you ever so anythinged something? Like, have you ever just been so emotional that like all you could do was cry? Have you ever been so frustrated that you like kicked a cat? Have you ever been so angry that you like punched a wall, hurt your hand, you're like, dang it, why'd I do that? But you were just so, so angry. There was only one thing that you could do. Have you ever been so in love? that you got down on one knee and you asked somebody, will you spend the rest of your life with me? I love you, I'm so in love with you. I don't know what else to do other than come up with this massive proposal, buy you some rock out of the ground that's way too much money, put it on your finger, because I love you. 
I'm so in love with you. God goes, I am so in love with humanity that in all of my godness, in all of my wisdom, when I get to the end of myself, the one demonstration that I can do to show you is to give you my son. It's incredible that Jesus comes as the son of God to show us the heart of the father towards us. And this has become the chief confession of our faith. A lot of theologians and writers have said that the summary statement of the Bible is John 3.16. If you know a verse, it's probably John 3.16 or another one that Tim Tebow wrote, right? But this, it's so famous because it's so central and so climactic and paints such a beautiful picture of the scandal of who God is of what separates him from every other God that's ever been. That we have a God who would send his son to be with us. Do you know that Jesus is a son? Do you know that he's got a dad? Do you know that he's part of a family? And that yet being a son, he was sent as a sacrifice. What a beautiful mosaic. So then, if Jesus is the son of of God, it changes everything about human history. I want for you to think about this for a moment. The watershed statement of Christianity is that Jesus Christ is the son of God. The cornerstone tile in this mosaic is that Jesus Christ is the son of God. If you don't know a lot about engineering, the cornerstone is the piece that holds the entire structure together. And Jesus being the son of God is the cornerstone piece of the mosaic of who he is. If he is not the son of God, nothing else about his life matters. Larry King was being interviewed once and he was asked in an interview if he could ask God any question, what would he ask God? And Larry King said, I would ask him if he has a son. Because if he has a son and his son's name is Jesus, it changes everything about all of history. But if Jesus is not the son of God, then none of the other tiles matter. Think about it for a second. If Jesus isn't the son of God, if he is just a really great leader and a really great teacher and a really great influencer, but not the son of God, then he's not the savior of the world. And think about it for a second. If he's, if he's just somebody who's very moral and he's just somebody who's very kind and he's just somebody who's very nice, but he's not the son of God, then he's not, then, then he maybe acts as a sacrifice, but he's not the sacrifice. If, if he's just a rabbi, if he's just a Jewish rabbi, if he's just, you know, somebody who introduced some really interesting concepts for us to ponder and he wants us to just be like nice to each other and he's a really great philosopher, but he's not the son of God, then he's not the object of our worship. I mean, it's really weird, everything that we're doing here if Jesus isn't the son of God. Can I get an amen? Like if Jesus is just a dead, wild, obscure Jewish rabbi from the first century, why are we singing songs to him? If he's not the son of God who has power in this life and power in the next life, then he's not worthy of our worship. But if he is the son of God, 
If he's really God's son, then it validates and vindicates every other title that he carries. And he is not only the object of our worship, but he should be the focus of our entire lives. He should be the thing and the person that we, that we look to and that we worship and that we gaze upon and that we live for each and every day if Jesus is the son of God. You know, this has been one of the most misunderstood and debated truths throughout the history of Christianity. It was debated in um, the famous historical councils of Nicaea in AD 325 and Chalcedon in AD 451. They were filled with debates in the early church about whether or not Jesus was actually God. A couple hundred years removed from his life, people start to debate. And this is where things like the Apostles' Creed come from and doctrinal statements come from and confessions of the church come from. That there's no if, ands, buts about it. Jesus is the Son of God. The only Son of God. That he is fully God, fully man, always existed, stepped into history to show us who God is like and to be God himself. It's still a debate today. If you begin to do missions in the Muslim world and you start to evangelize people who practice Islam and you start to have conversations with them about Jesus, you will quickly find that Muslims believe that Jesus is a prophet, but they cannot get over this barrier that Jesus would come as the son of God. They can't accept it. They debate it. If you start to talk to Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons in their faith, they believe that Jesus is the created son of God, that he is not the eternal pre-existent son of God who stepped into history but that he was like created by God and is just worthy of honor and he's a great example and you too can become sons of God just like Jesus and get your like own planet someday but the Bible is clear from cover to cover, that Jesus is the son of God, that he is not just some religious zealot or a really great teacher, but that he is God incarnate, that he is the God who's come to save humanity from their sins, that he is the God who's come to show us who God is and what God is like. This title, son of God, um, appears 47 times throughout the New Testament. And more important than even how many times it's used, who it's used by, I think, is really significant. Check it out. Look at who sees Jesus as the Son of God. For starters, angels see Jesus as the Son of God. Luke chapter 1, verse 30 says it like this. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. So extraterrestrial, angelic, heavenly beings say that Jesus is the son of God. Now, you've got to get out of your mind like, um, like naked baby Cupid angel on a Hallmark card for a second, okay? That's not these angels declaring that Jesus is the son of God, okay? Think transformers, okay? Transformers, angelic, heavenly. If you saw them, you would bow down, worship them, pee your pants, or maybe die, okay? They show up and they go, Jesus is God. I don't know about you, but if a transformer's like, hey, that baby right there, he's God, I'm like, okay, I trust you, I trust you. But it's not just the good guys that declare that Jesus is God. It's not just angels. Demons declare that Jesus is God. 
Look at this, Matthew chapter eight, verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So now you got demons. You don't just have the good guys, you got the bad guys. You got the opponents of God, people who are warring against God, people who rebelled and left God going, yeah, this is the son of God. This is him. And not only is this him, they bow before him and surrender to him. They go, we know you've told us, we've seen it, a time is coming when you're gonna torment us and this whole thing's gonna be over. Is that time right now? I, I know you're coming twice. Did I miss your first coming? Because if this is your second coming as the son of God, I'm really scared. Demons see him as the son of God, but not just demons, y'all. The head of the demons see him as the son of God. Satan sees him as the son of God. It's actually the first time, this is very interesting, that we ever see the title son of God used in scripture. It is used by Satan or the devil. And it's when Jesus is in the wilderness preparing for his ministry and um, Satan comes to him and he uses this title as a way of taunting Jesus, trying to tempt Jesus. He taunts him and he says this, uh, Matthew chapter four, verse three, if you are the son of God, if you're really the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Matthew 4, 5. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. We got Satan calling them out. So we've got angels, demons, Satan declaring that Jesus is the son of God. But it's not just supernatural beings. His disciples see it too. The disciples declare that Jesus is the son of God. Matthew chapter 14, verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. Like this is right after uh, Peter and Jesus do their little stroll on uh, the lake. And I don't know about you, but like this makes sense to me, right? Like if you put yourself in the boat and you're in the middle of a storm and you see a dude coming up like skating on water in the middle of a storm, and he invites your friend to come out for like a little duet. And then after they kind of prance around on the water, he gets back in the boat, snaps his finger, calms the storm. I'd be like, yeah, he God. Like he's God, like there's no doubt about it. Like I am going to bow down and worship him. This dude is something different. He is not a rabbi like other rabbis. He is not just a prophet. He is not just a teacher. He is not just a good man. He is the son of God. His disciples see it. Um, the book of John is actually written, and, and the reason that the book of John is written and the way that it's written and the stories that it tells is to capture the miracles of Jesus so that you and I see that he's really the son of God. John, um, you, you got to read the Bible like this. It's so fascinating. John actually gives us his thesis statement for the entire book of John in John uh, chapter uh, 20. In John chapter 20, the thesis statement for why the apostle John wrote the book, says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. What John just said is that miracles, signs, wonders, they all act as the compelling evidence that Jesus is the son of God. 
Listen to this. I just want to give you a list really quick. Jesus turns water into wine, casts out spirits and demons, heals the sick, cleanses the leper, fixes a withered hand, calms the storm, restores sight to the blind, restores speech to the mute, hearing to the deaf, feeds 5,000 people with a Lunchable, feeds 4,000 people with a Lunchable, walks on water, knows what people are thinking, predicts things that happen, and raises the dead. And John says that he does it all to show you that he's not just some prophet. He's not a good man. He's not a great influencer. He's not just your rabbi. He's not just your guru. He's not just your role model. He's not just your homeboy. He's not just your friend. He is the son of God. The son of God who is worthy of worship, worthy of adoration, worthy of praise. He is the supreme object of worship. Perhaps the most convincing perspective is that God sees Jesus as his son. Matthew chapter three, verse 16 says it like this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is uh, the most vivid picture in all of scripture for what theologians have come to call the Trinity. Let me hear you say Trinity. And although you will never find that word in the Bible, we see the evidence of the Trinity from cover to cover. And the Trinity is this, it's the confession that we believe we worship a God who, one God who eternally exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all three, one deity. They are separate in person, but equal in power, authority, and Godness. And God the Father, in this moment at Jesus's baptism, Matthew says that as he's going under the water, that the sky, and he comes back out, that the skies open up and the Holy Spirit falls like a dove and it crowns him the son of God. And a voice cries out, this is my son. With him, I am well pleased. Now, Peter the apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, one of his best friends, when he writes his first letter to the first century church called First Peter, he, um, he thinks back on this interaction. And um, he gives us such great insight to it. It's, it's really fascinating. Look at what he says. First Peter chapter um, 1, verse 16. He says this. This is so good for our faith. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, we didn't just follow a fairy tale. When we told you about Jesus, we didn't just tell you a myth or a story or an allegory or an analogy or some poetry. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's saying we were there. We saw it. We heard it. Literally, like 
if we're gonna believe all this stuff, y'all, there's gotta be some components to it that are mind-boggling and that are fascinating and that cause us to become convinced. And Peter's going, yeah, we were there. A group of us were there when he was going in the water and there was this voice that came out of nowhere, y'all. And there was this spirit and it was descending and we heard it with our own ears. This is my son and I am well pleased with him. Why else? Why else would these common men be willing to give up their entire lives, would be willing to be executed, martyred, crucified, persecuted, if this was all just a sham, if this was all just a story, if this was all just a hoax. No, they heard it. They saw something supernatural take place where the God of the universe, the Father, the first member of the Trinity, goes, that's the second member of the Trinity. That's my son. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit falls on him like a dove going, yeah, this is him. This is him. Look at him. Listen to him. Follow him. He is who you've been looking for. Now, Peter says that he references the holy mountain, which is called the transfiguration. And this is just going to be a weird part of our faith, but I just want for you to see it. This is so amazing that this actually happens in the life of Jesus. Remember, I'm trying to paint a mosaic. I'm trying to get you to see him as more real and more beautiful and more unique and more captivating and more fascinating. I'm trying to make this story more real for you, that he is who he says he is, that he is worthy of all your worship. And so he does this. He has this moment um, called the transfiguration. It's in Matthew chapter 17. It says, after a Six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. I mean, transformed. It, 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 he went from being the son of man that looks like a man and that looks like a human and that looks like you and me, who was a, a, an Arabic, Hebrew, Jewish guy who would have had long hair and would have had rough hands and would have had dark skin. He went from looking like that to looking like the majestic, glorious God who existed before the world. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. I love that. I love that, that Peter's like, can we just stay here and just worship you? I will make a tent. And Peter's just talking when he's not supposed to be talking. So God's like, shut up. And then he just this big light overshadows. And then he hears this voice. And this voice says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Terrified. They, they don't say they're scared if this is just made, like, that's a natural response. Like, if you have that encounter with Jesus where he's like, let me show you who I really am. Like, you thought you saw a mosaic. No, I'm going to show you a mosaic, okay? You would be terrified. You'd be like, oh, my goodness, who is this man? Who is this man I'm following? Who is this man I'm trusting? Who is this man that I'm worshiping? And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Think about it. Twice, two times, God the Father gives us this public declaration in front of people where a supernatural event occurs and his voice thunders from heaven and he goes, that's my boy. That's my boy. That one, I'm proud of him. I love him. I claim him. I love that. Have you ever thought about the way that things that your father says to you has a way of shaping you? You ever thought about that, that in this moment, 
God the Father saying something to Jesus that shapes him and that gives him the confidence to carry out the mission of his life. I mean, what a difficult mission he has. But he gets to walk in that mission knowing that his dad's proud of him, knowing that his dad's claimed him, knowing that his dad's in his corner and that his words have shaped the things that he said. Dads have, their words have a way of shaping who we become. I'll, I'll never forget um, sitting in a Home Depot parking lot with my dad. And I was sitting in a Home Depot parking lot with my dad when my dad said something to me that I actually now believe to be prophecy. He probably didn't know that it was prophecy then, and he's probably not even charismatic enough to believe that it's prophecy now, which is very funny. But, um, but he said this to me. He goes, um, your key to success in life is the ability to communicate with people from every walk of life, to be able to communicate with the people from the most upper echelon in society and to communicate to the bum on the street. And so that night I went home and I started to read the dictionary and I started with the word echelon. I was like, what is this word? Who are these echelon people that I'm supposed to be talking to, right? And so I went home that night and I started to read the dictionary and I did it every single day for like years and years and years. And so if you ever wonder why sometimes I will use some like big random SAT prep word and then like hood rat in the same sentence, that's my dad, okay? <laughs> but the thing that my dad said to me had a way of shaping me and the same thing is true for Jesus. He was a son who had a moment with his father that gave him the confidence to carry out the call that was placed on his life to become the savior of the world. Do you see him as a son? Because a son who's like so stoked to make his dad proud. The son of God who doesn't care about the opinion of man, but who's fiercely passionate about the glory of his father. He's the son of God. Look at this. I love that what happens in Luke 2.49. Luke 2.49 says this. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, this story is funny. If you're not familiar with it, what's happening is uh, the little bit that we know about Jesus' early childhood is that his mom and stepdad, Joseph, lose him. And they go looking for him, and uh, they eventually find him in the temple. And he's, like, teaching people in the temple about who God is because he is the son of God. And he's like, why were you panicking? You should have known I would have just been with my dad. Like, that's what I want. I just want to be with my dad. I, I love my dad. I love spending time with my dad. There is no place I'd rather be than just sitting right next to my dad, going on a journey with my dad. It doesn't matter what my dad is doing. I just want to be where he is. We see this articulated again in, uh, in uh, Luke chapter uh, 6, verse 38. It says, for I have not come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I, I love that. Like there's something about a relationship between a father and a son that if you've ever noticed, like sons just want to be with their dad. It doesn't even matter what their dad is doing. Like, yeah, dad, I'll, I'll go to work with you. Yeah, dad, I'll wash a car with you. Yeah, dad, I'll cut the grass with you. Like, I love Haddon right now. My, my son, I'm just indoctrinating him to be a lover of basketball, okay? Like, indoctrinating him. So we have, like, a full-size basketball in our living room at all times, okay? And, like, at night, like, like we put basketball on the screen. We watch basketball games, and I hold him, and I'm just like, basketball, Haddon, yay. Basketball, Haddon, yay. Basketball, Haddon, yay, right? Just indoctrinating him. I sing uh, the Like Mike song. Y'all remember the Like Mike song? 
Basketball is your favorite sport. I like the way you dribble up and down the court. Your favorite play is the ollie oop. You like the pick and roll. You like the give and go. It's basketball. Hat in. Let's go. Every night. Every night. I'm just like, you're going to like basketball. But here's the truth is he's going to because I like basketball. It's just the way that sons interact with their Dad and Jesus is a son who's like, I'm going to be just like my dad. I'm going to do what my dad wants me to do. I'm going to fulfill the purpose that my dad has for my life. But the purpose that his dad has for his life is to crush him. The purpose that his dad has for his life is to not save him and not to spare him, but to sacrifice him. Romans 8 verse 32 says it like this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That scripture is saying that there was this obstacle in the way of God loving you and me. And that obstacle was not just our sin. That obstacle was his son that he loved his son. Do you know how much God loves his son? He has loved him from all eternity past. Literally, you see the creation narrative and there's God, there's Father, there's Son, there's Holy Spirit and they're in perfect relationship with themselves. All throughout scripture, the Son glorifies the Father and the Father glorifies the Son. The first thing we hear God say about his kid is, I'm so proud of you. I love you so much. He's with him. Jesus often withdraws to lonely places to be with the Father is what the Bible says. All throughout his ministry, he's like, I just got to go be with my dad. This is such hard work. This is such a difficult task. I just want to go spend time with my dad. And he tells people things like, I'm here to glorify the Father. I'm here to show you who the Father is. I'm here to show you the works of the Father and the gifts of the Father and how good the Father is. When you pray, pray like this, Abba, Daddy, who's in heaven, who loves me and who wants good for me. Jesus is in this perfect relationship with the Father. And the father is so proud of his son, and yet he doesn't spare him. There's this obstacle of his love for the son standing in the way of his love for you and me. Can he do it? Can he let his son be crushed? Can he let Jesus be mocked? Can he let Jesus be taken advantage of? Can he let Jesus be disregarded? Can the dad of the universe be okay with letting people like you and me choose his stuff over his son? Can the God of the universe be okay with his son coming to earth as the perfect sinless sacrifice, as the ultimate example for all of humanity, but us just acting like he is this side show person who is worthy of a little bit of our time here and there, but not worthy of all of our lives? Can, can God get over that? Can God get over people not seeing the potential and the greatness and the significance of his son? It's massively standing in the way of God saving and loving you and me. But Paul says... If God would go to this length, if God would go this far to not spare his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God loves you this much that he would give up his son for you, there is nothing that he would not do to prove his love for you. This is wild love that we see in Jesus as the son of God. This is unfathomable love that we see in Jesus as the son of God. I loved this quote this week. Only the Christian God has scars. 
Only the Christian God has scars. Christianity is unique in that it believes that God became hurt so that you and I could become healed. You know, right before Jesus breathed his last breath, he is on the cross and he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross knows what it's like to feel like he's all alone and go looking for his dad and feel like his dad isn't there. Jesus knows what it's like to be afraid and to be nervous and to be full of pain and agony and going, dad, I need you to help me and feeling like his dad wasn't there because Jesus Christ is the son of God who steps into humanity to become the forsaken son of God so that you and I can become the forgiven sons of God. Jesus was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. Jesus was rejected so that we could be accepted. Jesus was sacrificed as the son of God so that we could be made whole. Greater love has no man than this. I love the way that First uh, John talks about it. First John chapter four, verse 10 says this, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. Now, I bet you haven't used that word this week. Propitiation is this idea that Jesus as the son of God has the unique ability to not just take away our sin, but to take away God's wrath. That because he's the son that when he dies for us, he removes God's wrath and God's anger towards us. You see expiation, another big theological word means that like your, your sin or, or, or your shame is taken away, that like your guilt has been canceled. But, but propitiation means that the anger that God had towards you and me because of our sin was taken away. It would be like this, it would be like being in a courtroom and sitting in a courtroom where somebody had done something to you or to your family that was just really horrible. And um, somebody getting up and going, hey, hey, I'll trade places with the person who did that horrible thing to you. I will go uh, and take their punishment so that they could go free. If they did that, would your anger be appeased? Absolutely not. It wouldn't make any sense. It'd be like, well, I'm not mad at you. You didn't do the wrong. That person did the wrong. That person deserves to die. Jesus as propitiation means that he doesn't just take our punishment, but that he takes on our sin. And that he carries every wrong, every error, every thing that we've done that we wish that we wouldn't have done. He takes it on himself. It would be like this sitting in the courtroom and the person who had been condemned to die was actually proven to be guilty because somebody else stepped forward and said, hey, they didn't do that. I actually did that. And so now I die in their place rightfully to take away, to pay the penalty of the crime, but also to take away the anger that you had to them. Jesus becomes the son of God to do that for you and me. What kind of love is this? Jesus, in the, in the book of John, 
Over 150 times he calls out to God as Father. Over and over and over again, the picture of the relationship that Jesus has with God is that he is the Son and that God is the Father. 150 times he says it, he shows it because he wants us to see him as the Son of God and this is what gets him killed. This is the barrier that has been standing in the way of people believing in Christianity for 2,000 years. This is the reason that the Jews killed him. You know that, right? I told you that earlier at the start of the message that this is how God sees him as his son. This is how angels see him as his son and demons and Satan and the disciples and all of history. But this is how his executioner saw him as this Jewish rabbi making a claim that was preposterous, that was that was blasphemy, that was a lie, that was a slap in the face of God. You can't be God. You can't be God's son. You can't call him father. You see, for the Jews, the third commandment says that you should not take the Lord's name in vain and they won't even say the name of God, much less declare that God is their father. And so for Jesus to do this was just a slap in their face and it made them wanna kill him. Let me show you John. Chapter five, verse 18 says this, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So what happens? Caiaphas, the high priest of the Hebrew faith, the Jewish people begins to plot and to ploy and he puts Jesus on a trial for this crime for this crime of claiming that he is God, that he is the son of God. John 19 verse five says, so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, take him yourselves and crucify him. For I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law and according to the law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Jesus is paraded out there in the final picture of the mosaic of who he is. And he is mocked as a king. He's got a purple robe and a crown of thorns and they're mocking him saying, you think you're a king, you're no king. And they chant crucify him. And Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. And they say, we have a law. He stepped on what's sacred. He calls himself God and we can't tolerate it. So we will kill him. And kill him they do. Jesus, the son of God, dies. He really dies. He goes into the tomb. The most barbaric death. Like, I'm just telling you guys, I think we lose the sensitivity to this. I'm sitting here this week and I'm looking at this little precious newborn baby girl. And I'm thinking about the heart of being a dad towards her. And I'm looking at my son, I'm just holding my kids and I'm kissing them and I'm just cuddling with them. And I'm just like, no way would I let something happen to them. But the son of God dies for you and me. He's forsaken by his father so that you and I can be forgiven and accepted and a part of the family of God. This is the mosaic of who Jesus is. One last scripture for you today. Re Romans chapter one, verse three says that he didn't just die, but that he also rose. 
concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. His resurrection is his ultimate coronation. He is the son of God because he rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, he can be trusted with your life. He is deserving of worship and honor and devotion. He is the son of God. This is how I want to close. I've got four scriptures that I want to read to you. And these scriptures are from the book of John where the title Son of God is used more than any other time throughout the Bible, outside of the Gospels. And um, it tells us the implications of believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And I wanna read those over you today. First John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. First John 4, 15 says, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they live in God. 1 John 5, 5 says, who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. 1 John 5, 10, whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. I want for you to know, church, that the masterpiece and the mosaic of this man, who he is, is about knowing eternal life. If you know him as the son of God, then you know life. And if you don't know him as the son of God, then you got nothing. You got nothing. The goal of the human experience is to see and to savor the greatness and the beauty of Jesus and to see that he is the son of God, who you've been looking for your entire life your life is supposed to be about. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, I just wonder, do you know him today? Do you know him today as the son of God who takes away the sin of the world? If you don't, I wanna give you an opportunity to, to just confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he is the son of God and that he died in your place and that God rose him from the dead. So if you'll just pray this prayer, Jesus, I need you. And Jesus, I love you. And I know that I have sinned, but I know you're the son of God who's died for me. I crown you king today. I believe you rose again from the dead. And I want to live my life for the glory of your name. If you prayed that prayer, then something incredible happened today. You stepped into the family of God and the son of God is now your brother and you are in the kingdom of God. And I just wanna celebrate with you with heads bowed and eyes closed to mark this moment that today you met the son and you crowned him king. On the count of three to just lift your hand in the air to say, I'm giving my life to Jesus today. I don't know what I came in here looking for initially, but I know that I found it and his name is Jesus. That's you on the count of three. I would love it if you'd raise your hand in the air. One, two, three. Now, come on, can we celebrate people declaring that Jesus is the son of God today? Father, as we move into a time of worshiping you and lifting high your name and 
Jesus, remembering what you've done for us, I pray that you'd bring to remembrance every picture of this beautiful mosaic that we've looked at. Jesus, that you're so worthy. And God, I just repent for the times that I don't take you seriously. Jesus, I repent for the times that I act like there are other things that are more important and that are more enthralling and that are more satisfying than you. And Jesus, in these next couple of moments, I just wanna fix my attention on what you did as the son of God so that I could become the son of God who experiences salvation and freedom and newness of life. You were rejected so that I could be accepted. What a glorious truth. I love you. It's in your beautiful name we pray, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.